Jane uh, sends her regrets. She's home uh, baking for the uh, epic retirement party for Titus Peachy this week. Um, actually, she's not feeling well, but uh, would have otherwise come. But the epic party uh, really is going to happen. And Bruce, uh, Mennonite Church USA, maybe it's Canadian time. We were formed in 2001. Um, and I know that's when the, uh, you know, the split happened with Mennonite Church Canada, so maybe it took a year for you all to catch up. But um, I was actually chair of the Commission on Home Ministries, and as a joint mission board, we sent a resolution to the executive committee that was forming Mennonite Church USA to have missional being part of the core identity of this new denomination. So I really appreciate you calling attention to that reality. I also apologize for missing the dress code uh, memo, uh, but my late father would say, if you don't have anything meaningful to say, at least try to look good. <clears throat> the mission of the Lancaster County Council of Churches is to unite communities of faith as ecumenical partners, putting our faith into action. We work together for justice, peace, healing, and reconciliation for the whole community, by ministering to human needs and addressing community and societal issues. I was really drawn to that mission statement. Every day we try as staff and a board and volunteers to live into that reality and we cannot do that without partner churches like East Chestnut Street Mennonite. During the first week on the job I met a gentleman who was just wrapping up his visit to our PA workwear clothing bank. He was referred to us by CareerLink, and he needed a suit for the interview portion of that course. With suit in hand, he said to me, this is my first suit. I never had one before. He also had a white shirt, a belt, and a necktie, and on his intake form, he wrote this word of thanks. Never knew nice people still care for a stranger. Caring for the stranger and extending hospitality to those in need is at the heart of the gospel. And what is fascinating about our two texts for today, Jeremiah 29 and Luke 10, is that the point of view from these texts is from below. It is from the ground level, from the perspective of those who are living the story of being the guest or the refugee and not the host. When Jerusalem fell in 587 BCE, there was utter disbelief. Walter Brueggemann calls this assumption of protection the Jerusalem truth. And that Jerusalem truth blinded them from any other narrative. Jerusalem truth was built on the assumption that we are God's most favored nation. We are safe and protected behind our sturdy walls. No enemy can ever touch us. But remember that the word of the Lord came to the young man, Jeremiah, who did not want to be the spokesperson for Yahweh. Remember when the call came, Jeremiah said, Ah, Lord God, truly I do not know how to speak, for I am only a boy. Now, Brueggemann, who knows Hebrew, pronounced ach that way. He said, we miss a lot of the oomph of the text. And my grandparents uh, were Swiss, and I heard ach a lot growing up. Truly, I do not know how to speak, for I am only a boy. 
So there was resistance and sometimes very serious and violent resistance to this word of the Lord spoken through Jeremiah. But he said, things are going to get rough. God's people will be taken captive. Many will be killed. The empire of the day, in this case, Babylon, will prevail. Well, this word of the Lord was unthinkable to those who were the keepers of the Jerusalem truth. No one wanted to hear that counter-narrative spoken by the priests and custodians of the tradition. But we know that 587 did happen. The walls were indeed breached in Jerusalem, and there was violence and loss of life, and many were taken captive. And one of the most important questions in the midst of this desolation was, where is God? Where is God when things fall apart, when there is so much chaos? Where is God when we have done everything right according to what we have been taught about living a godly life, and yet everything has gone so terribly wrong? You may recall in Psalm 137 that the Babylonian captors mocked the refugees from Jerusalem and asked, Where is your God? Sing us a song of Zion. And the sad reality was that the people of God, who once were secure behind their walls, secure in their faith inside their temple, secure in their faith within the context of that Jerusalem truth, now were rendered mute. How can we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? So that's the challenge, isn't it? How to trust and reinvent our faith when all of the things that brought us to this point have been challenged and shaken and taken away? Can we be the people of faith without all those externals, without the Jerusalem truth to prop us up? Brueggemann argues that much of the Old Testament was in fact written during the Babylonian captivity. In other words, the people of God had to rediscover their own story. The story of the captive slaves who were once not a people, that God shaped into a people. Remember how those liberated slaves did not go right from Egypt into the promised land, but to more than a generation into the wilderness. And during that wilderness time, the time of great liminality, of uncertainty, not where we were, not where we hoped to be, that is when they rediscovered how to worship God, that God was their refuge and strength, a very help in time of trouble. They had to rediscover and trust that God was with them in the wilderness, in the liminality of their present day existence. They had to trust and rediscover that God is in the gray of their lives. So many of the people that we serve at the council are in long-term experiences of displacement. One of the most helpful definitions of homelessness that I've heard is that homelessness is a profound disconnectedness from self, family, and community. A profound disconnectedness from self, family, and community. So when we walk alongside and provide nutritious food or clothing or transportation that is affordable and the emergency winter shelter connected to a long-term solution for their housing. We are hopefully helping that person and that family reconnect 
with a sense of self, reconnect with their family, reconnect with their community. And we do want to be part of the long-term solution, not just the Band-Aid assistance in the short run. We know that it is so much more cost-effective, for instance, to provide housing to someone who is experiencing homelessness than to have them enter the shelter system or to keep them in transitional housing for 18 months to two years to get them, quote, housing ready. That was the old model that we knew, and we managed people in homelessness. We didn't end homelessness. Now, and Lancaster County is one of those communities across the country at the forefront of this new paradigm shift of housing first. Salt Lake City, Utah, did a simple economic study that it was so much more cost-effective, so much less use of tax dollars to put people in housing first and bring the wraparound services to them than to try to manage them as they bounced around the shelter system, the emergency room, the county jail. Malcolm Gladwell years ago wrote an article about Million Dollar Murray, a guy named Murray Barr in Reno, Nevada, that they tracked as he bounced around from the shelter to the streets to a rehab program to the hospital, back to the shelter, then in jail. Everybody knew Murray. Everybody loved Murray. And when he passed away, somebody added up what it cost the city of Reno to do all of those emergency services for Murray Barr, a million dollars. And they said, there's got to be a better way. And that better way is housing first. Listen again to the radical word of the Lord that Jeremiah communicated to the captives who anticipated this kind of word of the Lord. Hold on, help is on the way to get you out of this foreign land. They anticipated being told, keep to yourselves, don't be contaminated by the foreign element all around you. You are, after all, God's chosen people, God's most favored nation. Instead, the word of the Lord from Jeremiah was this, settle in, you're going to be here for a while. Build houses and live in them, plant gardens and eat what they produce, take wives and have sons and daughters Seek the welfare, the shalom of the city where you are, where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare, its shalom, you will find your welfare and your shalom. How radical a word was that? To seek the welfare of the enemy that took you captive. To seek the shalom of the very empire that destroyed your way of life. We do well to remind ourselves of this alternative point of view. This radically different starting point. We do well to ask deeply about where God is in our community. And how God might want us to engage with the culture around us from a different perspective. Let me share a story. Some years ago, I was reading an article in the Mennonite Quarterly Review written by the late Dr. Robert Kreider. Robert Kreider grew up in Bluffton, Ohio, and would later serve as the president of Bluffton University, a longtime 
supporter and worker and board member and advisor and consultant and historian with Mennonite Central Committee. In one account, as he writes a memoir of growing up in Bluffton in the 1920s and 30s, he shares the observation of seeing two refugee families coming to town from Russia. They had fled some years after the Bolshevik Revolution and the subsequent Civil War in the early 20s, and these families stayed through that and found a way out. They were German-speaking Mennonites who had helped make the Ukraine and parts of Siberia into the breadbasket of that country with their excellent farming techniques. And these two families uh, fled when their lives were threatened. They spent a year in a refugee camp in China, and eventually, through sponsoring churches, ended up in Bluffton. They had gone east out of Russia over the Trans-Siberian Railway, walked across the Amur River after it froze over so they could get into China. And Robert heard the criticism of people at First Mennonite Church in Bluffton, asking why these families were so poor, why did they have so many kids if they were so poor, why did the men smoke, why were they so poorly dressed, and why was it taking so long for them to learn English? And as I kept reading, and what was so transformative for me personally was the realization that one of those two families were my grandparents and my four uncles and my aunt who had been born in China because my grandmother was eight months pregnant when they fled a little town in Siberia called Rheinfeld. First Mennonite Church is my home church. And once these two families got to Bluffton and found a place to stay and my four uncles enrolled in school, my mother, the youngest of these six children, was born to this family. And as we think about the thousands of refugees fleeing Syria and other parts of the world with a fairly small percentage coming to the U.S. and an even smaller percentage coming to Lancaster, how will we welcome them? What will be our narrative toward them? Will we sit in judgment and make assumptions about their reality, or will we be the nice people that care for the stranger? We know that the Greek word for hospitality in the New Testament is a compound word, philo xenos, brotherly love for the stranger. Many of these Syrian refugees will get food and clothing from the Lancaster County Council of Churches. Sheila Mastropetro from Church World Service serves on our board, and I was asked by Lancaster newspapers do you have a statement about helping refugees? And I said, not officially, but Sheila's on our board. And of course, we will serve Syrian refugees. That's not in question. We might help them with transportation if they are lucky enough to find work. We know that they will need ESL classes, most likely. They will need advocates to help them navigate the system of where to live, where to find work, where to find food. And this is a perfect segue into our second text, one of my favorites, and one of the most important sending texts of the New Testament. 
Jesus calls and sends out the 70 ordinary, unnamed disciples. These were not the super 12. These were everyday volunteers. Two by two into the towns and villages where he himself intended to go. And they were given very little orientation. They were told to pack light, stay focused on the urgent needs all around you, and begin by extending the peace of God, the shalom of God, to those you meet. So let's assume that many, if not all, of these 70 were Jews living in the borderland area of Galilee. You see, the further away you were from Jerusalem, the more suspect you were from the point of view of the Jewish authorities in Jerusalem. Were you keeping the faith? Were you going to synagogue regularly? Were you keeping kosher in your cooking? Were you avoiding those who were unclean so as not to risk your ability to remain clean? Jews in Galilee were surrounded by the other. So let's assume that Jesus was sending out the 70 into Gentile villages and Samaritan villages, the towns and villages where he himself intended to go. And we know by reading the gospel accounts that Jesus, in fact, visited Gentile and Samaritan villages. Doesn't that pose a problem if you're Jewish trying to stay kosher and there's no kosher deli in that? So when you enter a town, when you knock on the door of a stranger, you say, peace to this house. Shalom to this house. How radical is that? How reminiscent of that ancient story told about the refugees who were told to seek the welfare, the shalom of the city where they were taken captive. Make yourselves at home in a foreign land. Be the people of God where you are. And if you are invited in, if you were given the gift of hospitality, you are the guest in your host community, your host household. And you're told to eat what is set before you, and we, by implication, assume that they join in the household economy because the laborer deserves their wage, and your wage was a meal and lodging if you were engaging in the household economy. Don't move about from house to house. Don't go to a better deal. Figure out where you are, what's going on, and bring shalom to that house. Bring healing and a word of hope from God into that space. Let your imagination run a bit with those two Jewish people who have been sent and commissioned by Jesus himself to the towns and villages where he himself intended to go. And what if you were sleeping in a Samaritan household? What if you were dining with Gentiles three meals a day And you remember Jesus saying, eat what is set before you. So often in our church narrative, we make the assumption, the starting point, that we are always the host. There is a hosting role to play, don't get me wrong. But as we think about where we are, where you are in this part of the city, and I know that Todd and Samantha have already engaged in some of the conversations of what's happening in this neighborhood. That's really important. How are you being a good guest in 
the host community where you are. What is Jesus teaching us about hospitality and about being sent? Another story to end. Some years ago, we became acquainted with Sharon Robinson, who you will find pictured on the front of your bulletin. Sharon was a single grandmother working at a minimum wage job at Weiss Markets in the meat department. She was raising her 10-year-old grandson by herself. She had two daughters that did not live at home anymore. She had various other grandchildren not living with her, but we got to know her through a member of our church at Akron Mennonite whose son was in the same class as Sharon's grandson. She told Susan one day at a baseball game, you know, my porch is literally falling down and other people have offered to come and fix it, but nobody ever actually shows up and I don't have the money to do it. And Susan, being Susan, said those magic missional words, maybe my church can help. Maybe my church can help. She made no promises, but there was a spark of missional imagination in that moment at that baseball game with a neighbor, a friend, who said, I have a porch that's literally falling down. Maybe my church can help. Porches are liminal spaces, transitional spaces from public to private. We meet strangers who come to our door on the porch. We may or may not let them in, depending on whether we perceive them bringing peace to our house. Sharon's porch was literally falling down, and through the formation of a ministry team around Susan, she came to me and said, can you fix this? And I said, we need a champion. She said, what's that? I said, you need to be at the heart of this, not me. Okay, so we formed a ministry team. We did some creative fundraising, including some seed money from our missional challenge fund when we paid off our mortgage in 2001 at Akron, we set aside the same money. This is one of those radical ideas from that book. We set aside the same money for missional activity that had one requirement and that it was consistent with the mission of this church and it had a personal involvement. $30,000 a year and we've done that. I can't say we anymore because I'm not there anymore. We did that for the last 14 years, now going on 15. That was a financial commitment, but it also empowered missional imagination and ideas like Sharon's and Susan's together who said, can we fix this porch? The physical repair of the porch was the easy part. Mennonites are very good at fixing things. Mennonite disaster service, the SWAP program. And it was ironic that the summer before we started in on Sharon's porch project, we had sent our youth group from Akron Mennonite to Kentucky for the SWAP program at great expense because you have to pay your own way. And yet we ran into some resistance from folks at Akron. Why would we go around fixing some random person's porch in Ephrata? And I said, isn't that interesting? We just sent our youth group to Kentucky and what did we do there? My son was on that trip. We fix people's porches. But you see, it's so much easier to do that kind of 
engagement when the mess and the poverty and the generational disconnects of people living a lifestyle that is so foreign to us because we are so comfortable in our middle-class orbits, right? So you go to Kentucky and you help the poor fix their porch. Now, let me just stop there and, and give a lot of affirmation to Mennonite Central Committee who has a long-term presence in that part of Kentucky. That's what makes that ministry work. They have a long-term presence in that part of Kentucky. And my former co-pastor for eight years, Don Yoder Harms, I think you know Don, and the irreverent Doug, for five years were the coordinators of that program in Kentucky while we were in voluntary service in Akron. That's how Don and I got to know each other. And let me just say for the record, we never did let Doug and Lorraine sit together during church because it was um, too risky. So I tracked all of this engagement with this porch project. We had a relationship with Sharon before, during, and after that project. Fixing the part, fixing the porch physically was easy. We did an assessment, we did a deconstruction, we did a rebuilding. And all along the way, Sharon was part of that process. Her family got involved. At one point, her grandson... brings out cups of water and donuts. Now, it doesn't take a pastor very long, because I was there in the demolition phase, um, to see that for what it was. It was an act of hospitality, but it was also communion. I ended up writing my entire doctoral dissertation on the porch project because we learned an awful lot about ourselves. The assumptions that we made about Sharon living in in the situation that she was in, you cannot hardly make it on minimum wage in Lancaster County. We ranked 20th in the nation in terms of the correlation between living wage and affordable fair market rental value of apartments. We have a 97% rental occupancy rate in Lancaster City and County. You have to make um, $17.57 an hour to do an affordable apartment in Lancaster County. She wasn't making $17.57 an hour. That's why she couldn't fix her porch. If she would have had the resources, she could have had it done. We worked with her. She paid 10%. Ruth Weaver, bless her heart, worked out this formula. Every week as Sharon got her paycheck, she would put $10 in an envelope to pay her 10% of a $3,000 project, and she paid paid that, $300. That buy-in we thought was important. That's a partnership. That's what she could afford. Nobody else knew that, but we did in that ministry team. After the porch was finished, and the picture on the front is her being so amazingly blessed after we did a little blessing on that porch with her, the finished product. I don't know, it just, it's, it's such a powerful image for me. This is her space, this is her porch. 
Some months later, I get a call from Lancaster General Hospital. The person said, there's a patient here. She's not a member of your church, but she says, you know her. She's the porch lady. I said, I'm on my way. Long story short, Sharon had terminal cancer. I sat with her that day for almost two hours. And toward the end, I finally said and asked, Sharon, what do you need? She said, I'm not afraid to die. I'm at peace with God. My sister will take me in as I go on to hospice care. But my two girls won't be able to handle the funeral. They've never been to a funeral. They don't have a clue. And I said, maybe my church can help. Sharon's memorial service was held at Akron Mennonite Church a few weeks later. Susan was one of the speakers. I was worship leader and gave the homily. People from the community, Sharon's family, her neighbors, her friends, her co-workers, came to our porch. And we had to put out ashtrays because they all smoked. You see the assumptions that we bring. Nobody at Akron admits to smoking, and they certainly don't smoke when they come to church. So we got some cans, and we put it out there, and one of my staff people said, well, who's going to clean up all those cigarette butts? And I said, you know what? I don't think that's our primary concern right now because we need to be hospitable. We need to be good hosts. It's our turn when people came to our porch. People stayed around and ate cookies and coffee and tea, and they talked. And we together experienced shalom. Jeremiah 29 and Luke 10 invite us to have eyes to see and ears to hear from a different vantage point, a different starting point. When we read the biblical story from the point of view of the refugee, from the point of view of the guest, the ones being sent out into unfamiliar places, we come away with a deeper appreciation of how we might serve those on the margins in our midst And we enter with the assumption that we too will be transformed, that we too will be learning from this relationship. And as we learned with Sharon, it is all about relationships. This congregation has done that extremely well. And let me again express my deep appreciation and Affirmation for what you are already doing in the women's shelter, which we run seven nights a week, whether there's a blizzard or not, for four months. It takes about 80 volunteers a week to do that. I check in the folks every Tuesday. Now, this coming Tuesday, our new BSW intern, Sadie, says, 
I got this. I coached her up last week, and I said, do you want me to come? She said, Jim, I got this. I said, here's my cell number in case something unravels. But if you guys are there, you got this. What you do with the Chestnut, East Chestnut Housing Corporation is amazing and part of that affordable housing solution. So I thank you for what you do in your part of the city, for being willing to ask those important, deeper questions. How can we be a good guest in our host community in this part of the city? Together, we make a difference in someone's life every day. For that, I'm very grateful. And may it be so for us. Amen.